very pleased tonight uh, to be able to present a program responsive to, to suggestions that have been uh, made to the society and to the program chairperson over uh, on several occasions over the past several months and uh, we would like to continue to solicit your suggestions for things you'd like to hear programs built around. Tonight we are going to be talking about the Albany County Airport and we are very pleased to have with us uh, a person who is, is familiar, uh, knowledgeable, well recognized as, as uh, a competent uh, historian in this area, uh, Richard Allen. Mr. Allen is a, is a native of Saratoga Springs, New York and he has known New York State and its history most of his life. He's, this, is, this has been an, an avocation as well as a vocation. Over the years, he's held a variety of jobs. He's an interesting person. He's held things ranging from Wall Street office boy to private investigator. An Army Air Force sergeant in World War II, he returned to spend 17 years as postmaster in the village of Round Lake in Saratoga County. As a freelance researcher and writer since 1961, Mr. Allen has specialized in the fields of historical aviation, civil engineering, transport, and industry. And Julie has a, uh, a copy of one of Mr. Allen's uh, published works, which is very apropos to tonight's uh, program. It's called Revolution in the Sky. It was first uh, published in 1964, and this particular edition was a revision and reprint in 1967. And do I understand that it is now out of print? As of last month. As of last month, it is out of print. So those of you who may not be familiar with it may want to, to see it during the course of this evening. I wish it were not out of print. Is, it, is there a possibility it will be? Secondhand bookstore. <laughs> Mr. Allen's uh, variety of interests has also led him to become a consultant to the National Park Service, the Smithsonian Institution, the Adirondack Museum, and the former New York State Historic Trust. And he was involved in the planning of the New York State Museum in Albany. In the writing field, Mr. Allen is the author of eight books and numerous magazine articles. Uh, and besides the aircraft uh, book that I just showed you, he's written uh, uh, work on the wooden bridges, and a popular uh, history of early Lockheed aircraft. He is perhaps most proud of recognition in the form of a 1964 Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship in Engineering History. His current projects include books on American coastal fortifications, 19th century iron manufacture in America, and the use of American aircraft and uh, mercenary pilots in the Spanish Civil War of 1936-39. to 39. I know Mr. Allen uh, through his connection with the State Bicentennial Commission, which is attached to the Education Department of We Are Neighbors in the Cultural Education uh, Center. It is interesting that he was the first employee of the Bicentennial Commission and as program director and succeeding later to the position of executive director, he was occupied for the past nine and a half years in the commemoration of events in the American Revolution centered in New York State and also in the writing of publications concerned with its 200th anniversary. And if I'm not mistaken, you, you were the first employee and you were the, the last. <laughs> so that's come full circle. He's had a, a, a 
certainly an enviable and distinguished uh, role in that. Mr. Allen, as, as the announcement said, is a resident of the Albany area. He's a member of the, uh, he's a resident of Colony, and uh, it is a great deal of pleasure that I introduce not only an interesting uh, speaker, but a very interesting uh, person and a very valued colleague. Rich. You took my note. I took your note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob, and it's a pleasure to be with you folks tonight. Uh, I usually talk about covered bridges, and nobody wants to hear anything about airplanes. And so I was quite gratified that uh, you people did agree to listen to what I might be able to put together about old times in the Albany Airport and the planes that flew here and the uh, people that flew them. Uh, I think we could just launch right into the uh, slides, if, if I may. And the young man would turn on the uh, projector. I, I had turned it off there. The, or somebody, just, just flip it on high. That's good. You folks uh, are very familiar with this scene. You very seldom see it without any, a lot of taxis there and people rushing in and rushing out. I'm not going to uh, go into what you think of the Albany Airport, but I'm just going to talk about some of the things that took place there at, in, in days gone by. Uh, can you all hear me all right, or should I talk more into this? Okay. Of course, it all began with Wilbur and Orville back in 1903. When you think about it, that was uh, 70, <clears throat> let's see, it was 75 years ago in 1978, so it would be, uh, this year it would be something like 77, or it's going on 78 years ago. Well, when you think about it, people who are alive today and in good health can remember when there weren't any airplanes. That was in the days before Wilbur and Orville, who first flew their plane on the uh, sands of Kitty Hawk down in North Carolina on December the 17th, 1903. One of their competitors and uh, also sometimes uh, they might, you might even have called him an enemy was our own New York Stater, Glenn Curtis who came from Hammondsport, New York, and developed airplanes out there at the, on the shores of Cuca Lake near the wine, uh, the wineries that are famous at Hammondsport. If some of you saw the program was given a year or so ago, you would have thought that Glenn Curtis was quite a villain as far as the Wright brothers were concerned. But you mustn't believe everything you see on television. Uh, Glenn Curtis and himself was a wonderful person and did a great deal for aviation. This is one of the type of plane that he flew in. This is a reincarnation of one that was uh, put together for the bicentennial by the people in Hammondsport or with their money and also the Mercury Aircraft Corporation out there which doesn't make airplanes anymore but do does make components. Uh, 
And uh, this is a, uh, a replica that was flown uh, during the summer of, of 1976. Even more primitive was another type of Curtis plane. And you see you set on a board sort of in the middle of the, between the wings and you steered with your feet and you made the ailerons, that's the, uh, uh, for lack of anything better, we'll call them the flippers on the ends of the wings. You, you did that with a shoulder harness and uh, you also operated the ignition and the, and the <coughs> gasoline with your toes. So you, your whole body was pretty busy. Well, here's another picture of the uh, plane out at Hammondsport. And this is the uh, June bug uh, built by Curtis. And this was something like his Albany Flyer or the, his Hudson Flyer, which on May 29th, 1910, he flew from Albany to New York City. Now, Glenn Curtis had been in altercation with the Wrights down at Governor's Island the year before, and he wasn't able to fly very well, and so he wanted to vindicate himself. So the New York World offered a $10,000 prize for the first flight from either Albany to New York or from New York to Albany. And Glenn Curtis thought that he would uh, take up <clears throat> the idea of getting that prize, and so he built a special plane uh, called the, later it was called the Hudson Flyer or the Albany Flyer, and uh, Without any announcement, he brought it here to Albany. It came on the train in boxes, and uh, Glenn Curtis put up at the Ten Eyck and then looked around for a field and from which to fly. And he discovered that down on Westerlo Island, that, that's or Van Rensselaer Island, that's down in the south part of Albany. You would never recognize it as an island today. It's all covered with uh, warehouses and, and parts of the port of Albany. But in those days, it was a long, grassy flat along the Hudson River. And Glenn must have had quite a uh, personality because he was able to get the farmer that owned the field to get the rental down from $100 to $5. So uh, he began practicing down there and, keeping in, and was announcing that he was going to fly to New York City the next day and then the wind wouldn't be right or a rainstorm would come up or uh, something would happen and he couldn't uh, take off. He, he would always take off early in the mornings. So Albany lost a lot of sleep trying to uh, keep up with, with Glenn Curtis uh, and whether he was going to fly to Albany to uh, New York or not. And it was about the same time that Halley's Comet had appeared in the sky, so there was an awful lot of sleep lost in, in during that time. And any, at any event, after five days, uh, Glenn Curtis finally took off on Sunday morning, the 29th of May in 1910. The New York uh, Times, not to be outdone by the New York World, hired a special train and they headed with steam up over in Rensselaer and uh, they uh, signaled from on top of one of the oil tanks that Glenn Curtis was about to take off and the train whistled and they, went, they uh, had this special train with the newspaper reporters and about nine passengers and they paced Glenn all the way along the way. Well, you might think that Glenn could fly all the way to New York, but he couldn't. There just wasn't uh, the fuel capacity. So he came down and had it all figured out to come down at a place called Camelot, which is just a little south of Poughkeepsie. And that worked out fine. And he refueled there, took off again, and started through the 
uh, Gorge of the Hudson. That's by Bear Mountain, Storm King. And he later said that was one of the worst trips he ever took. And at one time he was within six inches of the water and he kept uh, pushing a little oil with a valve and he kept pushing a little more oil and more oil and he kind of over pushed it and finally ran out of oil. So he had to land on a grassy park, which is now in the Bronx, but he finally got to Governor's Island and won the $10,000. Well, that put Albany on the air map, as you can well imagine. Here we get an idea of how Glenn might have looked flying on down through the gorge of the Hudson and waggling his wings to the train, which kept up a piercing toots all the way. Lena Curtis, Mrs. Curtis, was aboard and she waved an American flag out the window as Glenn flew along. Uh, it was 20 years later that Glenn came back to Albany and made a, a duplicate of that flight in an, in an American Airlines airliner. And uh, this was only a few years or a few months before he was stricken with appendicitis and died at 52 in 1930. World War uh, One, of course, saw American aviation come of age as far as the military was concerned. And we made hundreds of planes on British desi designs, and, and, and then we had our own, which was called the Curtis Jenny. And Jenny, in many ways, was a docile creature, but in other ways, she was no lady. Uh, she had broad wings, and she would fly in and out of places. Uh, after the war, when surplus airplanes were available, you could get a Jenny and its parts and an engine, which would, the, the, the engine was uh, an OX-5 engine. Uh, it was an inline water-cooled engine, and you could buy between the engine and the plane, you could probably get them for $500. So that made a lot of what they called barnstormers, people who had learned to fly during World War I and then came out of the Army and had very little to do but still had that itchy urge to fly. And they would take their $500, put a Jenny together, and barnstorm. Barnstorming uh, is an old theatrical term, but uh, what these fellows did would be to fly someplace that had never seen a plane or hadn't seen very many planes, and they would come down in a farmer's pasture, ask permission, perhaps uh, it was given freely and even they got free board, and then they would start hopping passengers at $5 a throw. Sometimes they would do very well, and sometimes they would uh, go to a place where there wasn't uh, the interest and they didn't do very well. But it was a gypsy-like existence and they would uh, sleep under the wings at night, and uh, you talk to some of the old-time pilots and they say, oh, I wish I could go back. This is another Jenny, but this is a, a famous one because it was on a postage stamp. Uh, this was at the beginning of the airmail, which was started in 1919 out of Washington, D.C., and airmail cost 24 cents an ounce to, to mail that seemed exorbitant to people who had been used to paying two cents for, for a, to mail a letter. Today, it wouldn't seem very bad. Uh, the, these uh, stamps were issued in sheets of 100, and a fellow bought 100 of them over the counter in Washington, D.C. For, for $24 and realized that the stamp was printed upside down. I believe, and uh, some of you philatelists can bear me out that uh, one copy of this stamp with Jenny flying 
upside down recently brought something like $36,000. Another Curtis plane that flew in and out of uh, Albany was the Curtis Oriole. And as you can see, it has what they call a monocoque fuselage. That is a rounded uh, surface that was very streamlined and it was a, quite a racing plane. Uh, when you think that this was built in 1920, it looks uh, almost modern. The uh, first airport, I understand, in this vicinity was on the ridge uh, in Loudonville somewhere around Crumity Road, that is north of the reservoir. And that must have been an open field, and uh, I have heard of people flying in and out of there, but I don't know very much about it. It was very early on, and then uh, they decided they were going to use Westerlo Island, which Curtis had first started back in 1910. Westerlo Island was uh, dedicated on the uh, Let's, it was dedicated, I have the date here, 25th of September of 1926, and it was called Roosevelt Field. Now, we think of Roosevelt Field as Roosevelt Field on Long Island, and it was named for the same person, not Teddy or FDR, but it was named for Quentin Roosevelt, who was Theodore Roosevelt's <coughs> son, who was killed in action on the Western Front in 1917. Roosevelt Field in Albany became the, the first Albany airport and was maintained by a fund uh, put up by the Albany Chamber of Commerce. One of the strange things that I've discovered in this research is that nobody seems to realize it, but the first airmail was flown out of uh, Westerlo Island that same day, September 25th, 1926, in this airplane. This is a Fokker airplane uh, built in Holland and brought to this country and uh, flown around on various airlines and finally built by Americans down in New Jersey. This was one of the very first one and it was uh, flown by an outfit, an, an early outfit named Colonial Air Transport. This was the brainchild of a young man named Juan T. Tripp. Tripp you may have heard of because he became chairman of the president and chair chairman of the board of Pan American Airways. This was his first venture and it was to fly airmail from Albany to Buffalo. The first uh, consignment consisted of 60 letters and it was flown in this in this aircraft which is lettered NAAB. And Tripp was aboard, but Tripp was the kind of fellow that pretty well stole all the publicity. We haven't been able to find out the name of the pilot yet. Also, it was reported that the first cargo shipment ever sent by air out of Albany was a box of cigars. And they were sent by Mayor John Boyd Thatcher to Mayor Swab of Buffalo. That was on the, 26th, the 25th of September, 1926. Memorable, of course, was Lindbergh's flight to Paris on the 21st and 20, 20th and 21st of May in 1927. Lindbergh, an unknown male pilot from out in Illinois, sort of flew out of the nowhere, came to Roosevelt Field, Long Island, and then flew to Paris. 
He won the $25,000 prize that would, had been offered by Raymond Ortiz, uh, a New York hotel owner. And after that, aviation was never the same. Lindbergh was the catalyst and the uh, trigger that made aviation big business. Everybody wanted to get in on it. They even bought stock in the Seaboard Airline uh, Railroad thinking it was an airline. <laughs> After his triumphant flight to Paris in the spirit of St. Louis, which you see here hanging in the, in the Smithsonian, there's another picture of it. Uh, I think the other one's better. Colonel Lindbergh made it a tour of the United States uh, in the spirit of St. Louis. He uh, was a uh, very competent pilot. And you'll have to remember that this airplane did not have any forward vision. You had to either look out the window that way or look out the window that way or look in a, per a periscope which looked over forward. And mind you, Colonel Lindbergh flew all over the United States, landed on all kinds of impromptu grass fields, including Westerlo Island, with the spirit of St. Louis and never had an accident. He flew that plane for almost another year after he flew to Paris. Everywhere he went, he flew in the spirit of St. Louis and it became a, one of the most famous planes ever. But more than that, he sold aviation to the Americans. On the 27th of July in 1927, on his goodwill tour, Colonel Lindbergh stopped down at Westerlo Island and was acclaimed, of course, by the whole populace. The next day he flew over to uh, Schenectady and I happened to be there. I was 10 years old. My brother took me down from Saratoga and we saw the Spirit of St. Louis coming in and we parked and ran over and there was such a crowd that my brother put me on his shoulders and I saw Lindbergh, but my brother didn't. Next February, Lindbergh was back again to Westerlo Island uh, with the Spirit of St. Louis. This time, he was, it was in connection with the passage of aviation bills in the New York State Legislature. This picture was <clears throat> given me to copy by Mrs. Olton and this is purported to be Colonel Lindbergh with a man named Bowl who flew at the Albany Airport. I can't quite make it out as Lindbergh, but uh, I am not, I am not uh, going to uh, disagree. The first contract flight, airmail flight out of Albany was to Cleveland, and that was with a new colonial Airways. This time it was called Colonial Western Airways. And they had contract airmail Route 20, and their pilot was Merle A. Moltrup. And on the 1st of June, 1928, they flew out of what was to become the Albany Airport. You'd be surprised that their first stop was Schenectady. Can you imagine flying from Albany to Schenectady and then to Rome, or Rome, Utica, and then Syracuse, and then Rochester, and then Buffalo, and then Erie, Pennsylvania, and then Cleveland. And you were kind of tired when you got there, particularly with an open cockpit biplane. The uh, airport had been planned 
already, and uh, when Colonel Lindbergh was here in February of 1928, he was driven out by the then director, Chauncey Hakes, to uh, examine the 249 acres which were under option to be bought uh, for the airport from the Shaker settlement. The Shakers were helping the uh, men uh, in June, and that's how we know that uh, this flight took place because one of the, the uh, uh, diaries says that the dedication was on the 1st of June and, and the lady spent all day, the sister from the Shaker settlement spent all day watching the airplanes. A little later that fall, uh, on the 1st of October, the first flight took place from Albany to uh, Montreal and then back. And these are some covers that were flown on that flight. The uh, pilot flying up was, was uh, a gentleman named uh, Reeder, Paul Reeder. And uh, the first man to come back from Montreal uh, was uh, Billy Hughes. And they brought airmail, including the very first airmail stamp issued by the uh, Canadian government, which is up above there. Also, Hughes had aboard a present for Mayor Thatcher from uh, Mayor uh, Pierre-John Veniot of Montreal, and you never guess what it was. It was a bear cub. So the press speculated that this was the first official Air Express shipment and perhaps the first time that a bear flew. I've, I've always been curious as to what Ma Mayor Thatcher did with it. Albany doesn't have a zoo, and uh, perhaps some of you might enlighten us on that. <laughs> over, the, over the first year, this is the uh, kind of planes that uh, Colonial Western and Colonial, Canadian Colonial flew between the 1st of June and 1928 and 1929. In that first year, uh, Colonial Western flew exactly 550 passengers from Albany to Buffalo. And uh, Canadian Colonial flew 180 from Albany to New York and 125 from New York to Albany. But this is a surprising one. During the whole year, Canadian Colonial only flew 54 people from Albany to Montreal. And remember, this was during Prohibition. The fare was $35, but uh, still. Contrast that with the 790,000 people that are supposed to fly out of Albany Airport in 1980. Another view of the Pitcairn Mail Wing, the plane that uh, put Colonial Airlines on the map. This plane was also flown by the famous aviation writer Ernest K. Gahn, who uh, you may have read some of his novels. He was an early mail pilot on, on the western route from Albany to, the, uh, to Cleveland and put Albany Airport into some of his novels, such as Blaze of Noon and uh, his nonfiction as well. Some of the other planes that were flown in the 30s included the Inland Sport, which was a, a sport biplane with a parasol wing. The de Havilland uh, airplane, uh, which was an English plane and, and was built under license over in Lowell, Massachusetts. 
And a gentleman named G.E. Walker had the Albany Air Service in 1929, and they were distributors for the de Havilland moth, such as this uh, moth is on an exhibit in the museum. Also, there was the Brunner-Winkle Bird, which was built in Long Island City. Mrs. Lindbergh first soloed in one Brunner-Winkle Bird, very appropriate name for a, uh, an airplane. And the Kreter Reisner, the KR uh, airplane built down in Maryland. Now, this was the one that I had my first flight in in 1928. Then there was the Curtis Robin, which some of you may remember as being the mount of Douglas Corrigan, the famous one-way Corrigan, who in 1939 insisted that he was going to fly to Los Angeles and got mixed up and ended up in Ireland, uh, and has never admitted that he was wrong. <laughs> he lives today in Southern California and will tell you exactly the same as he did in 1939 uh, when uh, he was greeted by Ambassador Kennedy in England as one of our most famous Irish pilots. Corrigan, uh, when he came to Albany, I can remember uh, that there was a great celebration and the Knickerbocker News was printed in green. Some of you also may remember the uh, uh, little Aronka C-2. This was the, the mount of many uh, early pilots. They learned to fly in this plane. As you see, it's very simple. Two-cylinder engine, side-by-side -side cockpit, and uh, the wing was hung with wires from above. Very small. Uh, I learned to fly in that airplane, in that kind of airplane myself in Ithaca. Uh, it was later known as it was Aeronca, which was a contraction of Aeronautical Corporation of America, but most people called it the Air Knocker. Then there was the Curtis Pusher. Uh, or a flying bathtub, uh, which uh, had, as you can see, a pusher engine, and you sat right out front, and the noise went all over, out to the back, even as it does today and to, with today's jets. This was also an un, a very forgiving airplane and practically fly itself. All of these flew out of the airport. Uh, a man named Owen Harned had the distributorship for the travel air, such as this one, a transport plane. And then there was the Stinson, which was flown on passenger hops. I can remember taking a flight here, uh, and I had exactly $10, and I had a girl with me, and that's what the flight cost. And later I married her sister. <laughs> the famous Ford, or Tin Goose, was built by the Ford Motor Corporation when everybody thought that maybe there would be an uh, airplane in every garage. There wouldn't be this one, of course, because this was a transport plane carrying 14 passengers, and uh, uh, it was really rugged and, and well-built, and some of them are still flying today. These were built in 1929 and 30, and uh, there, was about there were about 200 of them built. This is one that was a rep or has been restored. Here's another one. And uh, some of you may even remember when Mohawk Airways at the airport here uh, flew one of these called Miss Albany. And it was flown from 1939 to 1935, so it was around for quite a while. In fact, the airplane is still around and is used to 
take people uh, on flights at exhibitions and things like that at a, at a cost of a penny a pound. I lost a little my focus, have I? What happened to the focus? Isn't there a focus on this? There's no focus on this one. <laughs> there we are. Thank you. <laughs> this is a Fairchild FC-2, which uh, Canadian Colonial Airways and Colonial Airways flew out of Albany, uh, this type of plane. This particular one was called the City of New York because it was uh, designed to be flown around the world. There was a theatrical uh, agent named John Henry Mears and his pilot, Charles Collier, uh, flew all the way around the world with it except for the oceans. They didn't fly across the Atlantic or they didn't fly across the Pacific. But they did uh, make that flight all, all around the world uh, with the plane, except for the ocean hops. And then uh, they would, would uh, take a goodwill tour like everybody else did, and they would come around in places like Albany. And I can remember reading about uh, the people who did take these goodwill tours, such as uh, Floyd Bennett, who was Admiral Byrd's pilot on the North Pole flight. And he remarked that it was fine in Albany uh, when I went to the Rotary Club, but after many, many meals of chicken and cream peas, I became a little disenchanted with the circuit. Another one, I think that wasn't a very good one. That showed how oil companies did fly aircraft, and uh, this is the Gulf Hawk flown by Al Williams, a famous pilot of the day. This one used to come into Albany Airport advertising Gulf products. Better known even was the Shell Lightning. This was flown by none other than James Harold Doolittle, who you know as General Jimmy Doolittle of Tokyo Raid fame in World War II. Jimmy Doolittle was born in 1896. That means he's just about 83 or 84 years old now. He lives in Santa Monica. And he, as you can see, is, he's short of stature, stature, but long on courage and experience and know-how. Jimmy left the Army, and he went to MIT, of all things, and became an aeronautical engineer. And he worked for the Shell Oil Company for many years and ended up as vice president of the company. This was in the, in the days when they would take a plane and fly it on all kinds of experimental flights. and. Uh, for the publicity that it would give to the oil company. And uh, my recollection of, of this particular plane is being up at scout camp in Saratoga County and seeing this plane coming down the iron compass, that is, it was following the D&H Railroad down to the, to the south. Uh, and it was obviously Jimmy Doolittle was flying it because I knew that he was the only one that did. This was during a flight uh, in 1932 in which Jimmy flew everywhere that George Washington went in his whole lifetime in one day. And he was very proud of that flight, and he took along a gentleman named A.F. Maple, who uh, worked for Shell, and uh, great, uh, George Washington's great-great-granddaughter with him in the plane, and they dropped out mailbags at all the places, and including 
one that was dropped right out here in the middle of Al Albany Airport and put in the mail, and so that a collection of all those envelopes that were dropped all over the country made quite a, quite a display. Jimmy, uh, is, is, as you can see, this plane is called Shell Lightning, and it is the only one of its type that's still in existence. Uh, it was in pieces on the floor of a hangar last time I saw it in California, and a man bought it in New Hampshire and was going to put it together and try to break some records with it, but we finally dissuaded him, and uh, uh, he uh, was able to sell it to the Swiss Air Transport Company, uh, who flew this type of plane in Europe, and they took it to Europe, and, it's, and it has an honored place in their exhibit in Luzerne, Switzerland. It's too bad to see it lose, leave the country, but it's nice that it's still in existence. And Jimmy Doolittle is still in existence, too. Another character was a real flamboyant gentleman named Roscoe Turner. Roscoe <coughs> was the uh, king of the barnstormers. He didn't go around in greasy old overalls and say, give me five bucks and I'll uh, uh, take you around the courthouse square and fly you upside down for another 10. Roscoe affected a beautiful cap and a powder blue uh, tunic, a Sam Brown belt, and pink boots. And he really sold the rides. Well, after a while, the barnstorming business didn't get so, uh, got kind of bad, and, and Roscoe went into the racing business, and he would try to make records back and forth across the country. His first mascot was a turtle, and uh, in a way that wasn't quite right, thought Roscoe. So one day he was driving along, and he saw the uh, emblem of the Gilmore Oil Company, which was a, a Los Angeles-based oil company, and this was a big lion. So Roscoe went to a zoo, or, or an animal shelter, and he got himself a lion cub, and he went to the president of Gilmore Oil, and he says, I can, you buy me an airplane, and I'll fly all over the country and advertise your, your uh, Gilmore Oil. Well, the company took him up, and there's the plane, and there's Gilmore the lion. Roscoe had a special compartment fitted for Gilmore, and uh, he had him uh, as a cub with his own special parachute, and he had a trigger there, and if anything happened to the plane and Roscoe had to jump out, he'd press the button and Gilmore would go flying out too. You can just imagine what some rancher out west would have thought <laughs> if that had happened. Well, it didn't happen, and after a while, Gilmore grew and grew and grew, and he got too big for the airplane. So uh, Roscoe put him in a, in a cage, or a large cage, at Burbank Airport, and would you believe that whenever Roscoe flew in, Gilmore would always growl especially because he could recognize the, the Hornet engine on this airplane. Uh, after a while, Gilmore even got too old and, and too uh, big for the cage at Burbank, and, and Roscoe put him in an animal farm. Eventually he died, and here he is in the Smithsonian today, <laughs> underneath one of Roscoe's air, uh, racing airplanes. Roscoe used to fly in here when he'd come to Pratt & Whitney to have his engine checked. Another visitor was Wiley Post of Post and Gaddy, the round-the-world flyers, and Post who flew around the world himself in eight days, or a little less than eight days, in 1933, all by himself. And remember, this man was deaf in one ear and had only one eye. 
He flew all around the world in that airplane. A lot of people think that that airplane perished with Post and Rogers up in Alaska in 1935, but it had been uh, retired and was eventually uh, acquired by the Smithsonian, where it's an honored exhibit today. Can't talk about famous people who came into Albany Airport without mentioning Amelia Earhart. This is a replica of her plane with her old number on it that was used in a couple of movies about her. Amelia uh, was a wonderful person to all, as far as everybody remembers. Uh, and uh, although she may not have been too hot a pilot, she was certainly a, a great feminist and, and wanted to do th the right thing by people. Unfortunately, uh, she was married to George Palmer Putnam, the publisher, who was an exploiter of the first water. Uh, here's an example of uh, what GP would do. He uh, had the Mexican government issue a special stamp for Amelia's flight. It's the one, the red one, way over in the corner. And they, they issued about a thousand of them, and GP got all of them. And uh, he had her flying them on the plane, and then he sold them for five or six uh, dollars a piece. And now today, they would probably be five or six hundred dollars a piece. They're the only ones. And though, of course, if they're autographed like this one was, uh, they'd be even better. Another thing, after uh, uh, May Earhart disappeared, uh, I always thought it was rather sad that GP sold everything that she had, all her logbooks, all her memorabilia. He just had an auction, sold it all off, didn't give it to a museum or anything. Then he married again a couple of times unhappily and died. One of the things that Amelia flew into uh, Albany Airport was an auto gyro. This was known as the flying windmill. Uh, it was invented by a Spanish inventor named Juan de la Sevierra. And uh, it one of these was owned by the Beechnut Packing Company out in Canajahari, and they hired Amelia to fly it around the country. Also of special significance to Albany, it was the Pangborn and Herndon flight of 1932. Uh, this was accomplished by Clyde Pangborn and Hugh Herndon. Herndon was a well-to-do young man who uh, teamed up with a veteran flyer of uh, Pangborn and projected a flight around the world to try to beat Wiley Post's record. Here they are, it's at a Belanca airplane. The Tidal, some of you may remember, uh, it stands for Tidewater Oil Company. They would always have uh, oil company logos plastered on their airplanes and then they would give them free gasoline. Tidal today is Getty Oil. Pangborn and Herndon uh, teamed up as a barnstorming outfit at first, and here you can see one of their tickets, the flying fleet, Pangborn and Herndon, dollar a ride. You see in Depression times, it was, it was down pretty, pretty low. Now they had bought this airplane uh, to fly to, uh, across the ocean, but in the meantime, uh, Hugh Herndon was going with a girl here in Loudonville named Farley. And he liked to come up every weekend to visit her. So he would take that uh, very expensive airplane, much to Mr. Pangborn's disgust, and fly up here to Albany. Here's a receipt 
from Mohawk Airways, I don't know if you can read it, but it's for overnight storage, $4 for Hugh Hernan's airplane back in 1931. Also, you notice that Mohawk was the distributor for Monocoupe, Monocoach, Monoprep, and Monosport. Those were airplanes built out in Moline, Illinois, and they were advertising their tri-motored Ford plane, Miss Albany. Well, the flight took place. They flew around the world, and they, but they uh, got delayed in Russia and were thrown in jail in Japan for flying over what was known as fortifications. So the Japanese finally let them go, and they had a, a $25,000 prize offered for the first flight from Japan to America. And so Pangborn and Herndon started off on that. And Seattle was all socked in so that they had to fly inland, and they landed uh, at Wenatchee, Washington, on a hillside in an airport that uh, Pangborn had known when he was younger. Uh, notice that they uh, don't have any wheels on the plane. They had dropped those for uh, better flying qualities after they left Japan, so they had to land on the belly. It didn't hurt the plane too much. Just the propeller is left because the uh, plane was later sold to a, uh, a nurse who uh, disappeared over the Atlantic. And the site today is a very scenic one in Wenatchee, Washington, and that monolith commemorates the Pangborn and Herndon flight and where that plane landed is a little, little, little back from where the camera is. Very scenic area out there. One of the most famous events to take place at Albany Airport occurred on the 2nd of July in 1932 when Franklin D. Roosevelt accepted the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. It had been all figured out beforehand that if he got it, he was to fly from Albany to uh, Chicago to accept the nomination. He wasn't going to go on any old pokey train. He was going to fly out there, and there was another reason for it. After all, you remember that uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt had a disability as a result of his polio, and he didn't want people to think he wasn't a man of action. So even though he had to hold on to his son Elliot, as he is doing here, and a special ramp built on to, in order to uh, get aboard that Ford tri-motor, uh, there he, there he uh, started off for Chicago and, and in, the, in a triumphant way. There's Mrs. Roosevelt is with him, Elliot he's holding on to, and his son John is there too. He was also accompanied by Guernsey Cross, his uh, secretary, Missy Lehan, who some of you have heard of, his private secretary, Grace Tully, the Mrs. Roosevelt's secretary, a Sergeant Earl Miller of the state police, and Gus Gennerick, who was for many years Roosevelt's bodyguard. Here's the flight taking off from Albany Airport with the Ford clattering along, and uh, the, the Democratic uh, Party paid exactly $300 to fly Governor Roosevelt to Chicago to accept the nomination. Another his historic note was that it was during this flight that uh, just about everybody except FDR was airsick. And FDR managed, Johnny uh, Roosevelt was terribly airsick. And, uh, but FDR managed to work on his speech and it was during this flight that he inserted the famous words that he used in the acceptance speech that became a byword of his administration, the words New Deal. 
Also political, in the same year but very vastly overshadowed by the Roosevelt campaign, was one between F. Truby Davison and Herbert H. Lehman. Truby Davison had been the uh, Assistant Secretary of War for Air, lived on Locust Valley, Long Island, and was running for governor. He hired Cl Clyde Pangborn, who was second from the right over there, and Burnt Balkan, who had flown with Admiral Byrd over the South Pole to fly this Fokker monoplane all around the uh, New York State uh, in a flying tour to, to get him to know the voters. I believe this is a Senator S. Griswold Webb, and I don't know whether the lady is Mrs. Is Mrs. Uh, Davison or not. In any event, you can just see Truby Davison for governor there. The plane was, was painted, oddly enough, a very atrocious purple and green. And uh, Davison, of course, was an also-ran, and nobody remembers him today. Here's Davison again when he was Secretary of uh, War for Air. And with him, with the uh, bowler hat, is Larry Bell, of Bell, uh, later famous for Bell Aircraft out in Niagara Falls. They're looking at a consolidated Fleetster airplane, which was built out in Buffalo. Here's a better picture of it. This was one of the first uh, airliners. It was used between New York and Philadelphia, and also uh, up to Boston, and was flown on special flights through Albany here. Another version of it went to an airline which <coughs> had a, the mouth-filling name of New York, Rio, and Buenos Aires Island, uh, Airline, uh, which contracted to Nurba or Near Beer. And uh, this airplane held the, this, this, this actual airplane held the record uh, for f the fastest flight in 1930 from Albany to New York, exactly 53 minutes. Also new in, uh, in 1931 was the fleet airplane, also built by that consolidated aircraft company out in Buffalo. And this was the first airplane owned by the state of New York. It was hangared here in Albany and was for almost the exclusive use of this, the uh, commissioner of, of um, uh, head of the Department of, of uh, Conservation, uh, Henry Morgenthau, who later later became uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, Morgenthau, of course, had to come to Albany for his business, but he was quite a farmer. He had a big farm down near Fishkill below Poughkeepsie. And so the tale is that he had the plane mostly to fly back and forth from Albany to uh, Fishkill. But it had an open co cockpit, and he didn't really uh, enjoy flying in it very much. He named it after his daughter, Joan Elizabeth, Joan Elizabeth Morgenthau, who is today Joan Elizabeth uh, Hirshhorn of New York. The airplane went on to better things. It was used by the Conservation Department for various, in various duties and uh, passed through a number of hands and today is still in existence and is owned by Clem Hoovler, who lives down in Freehold, New York, down in Greene County. Here it is out at the airport with a special ex exhibition they had of old planes in 1978. A little closer you can see that, that it has the, uh, the state seal restored on it and it's a 1931 fleet 
biplane. Even has I, I think that Mr. Hoover has put the uh, buff and gold on it, and the the people who flew the original uh, version or the same plane when it was new say that it was kind of a dingy gray. Also in the conservation department was a Waco flown by the pilot Albert Leo Wolf and uh, his partner there, Earl McGurk, who was the official conservation department photographer. The conservation department had quite a fleet of planes at one time, including a Grumman, I believe it's a Widgeon, and then there's a, uh, a, a small Cessna and a couple of Boeing Stearmans that they used to uh, feed or they would dump fish into remote ponds from them and use them for, for special dusting and then that Waco biplane on the end again. The, uh, the Grumman came to grief down in, in Rhinebeck and flew into a grove of trees, but I don't believe anybody was, was uh, seriously damaged. Back again to the airlines, this is Canadian or Colonial Airways Fairchild, the way it uh, looks, this is a restoration of it. And here you can see, get an idea what it would have been like to have boarded the plane here at Albany in 1931. Colonial Division of Air American Airways flew out of here to the west and also to the uh, east to Boston and also to, to New York. The, uh, the planes had only five passengers and mostly it was, it was male. And the, the companies in those days would uh, get more money sometimes for their mail than they would ever for, for passengers. In fact, uh, there was one company that uh, would mail Montgomery Ward catalogs back and forth to itself because the uh, they got paid more for the postage than, or they got paid more for the pound of mail carried than they did for the postage that they spent. American, American's Colonial Division, which flew through here, also developed the very first airplane, particularly meant for passenger service. This is a rather ungainly, fat-looking uh, airplane. It's called an American Pilgrim, 100A and uh, deep-bodied, would carry a lot of mail, a lot of passengers, a lot of express, big wide wings, and a uh, very forgiving airplane. Uh, wouldn't exactly land on a dime, but it, it wouldn't let you down too, too hard. And uh, one of those is still flying in Alaska. You may uh, be interested in some of the uh, uh, old uh, air baggage labels. That was a big thing. You know, you remember seeing uh, world travelers would always have their trunks plastered with the hotels they'd been and it was sort of a prestige thing, how, how far I've been and where I've been. Well, there was quite a fad of, of slapping these things on uh, suitcases that were carried on the early airlines and today, of course, they are collector's items. Here we have some of the lines that served Albany, Colonial, and they're quite nicely done, I think. And then there's Canadian Colonial which was split off from Colonial uh, in the uh, late 30s and became an independent airline and eventually was absorbed by Eastern. American down here. And then the special American label with the Curtis Condor on it. That was one of the last Curtis uh, commercial airplanes, a big biplane with twin engines. And they actually had sleeper uh, berths on it. That's something you'd think that they would have today. But uh, it never caught on. 
I can just imagine trying to sleep with a couple of, of engines thrashing around out there and an airplane going about 120 miles an hour. But today it seems, oh, they could, could make some sleeper airplanes. Uh, this was the type that Glenn Curtis took his last flight in in 1930. And uh, this was a mainstay up and down the Mohawk Valley. And you would see these out at the airport in all kinds of weather. Canadian Colonial also flew a very uh, fast uh, type of airplane called a Voltee. This you see you're getting into all metal construction here, but you only had a single engine and the uh, safety authorities frowned on single engine airplanes and after a while they wouldn't let the airlines fly them except during the daytime. So Canadian Colonial or American Airways got rid of 14 of them. They went, all went to Spain and became warplanes. But Canadian Colonial held on to theirs and it used to fly from here to Montreal and back. And then down to New York and back. And it was kept shuttling back and forth four and five days a week right through here in Albany. Just, this is the last one that's existing. The, the one that did fly uh, for Canadian Colonial was destroyed only a few years ago in an accident in Pennsylvania. This is the last one. It's in a museum a flying or, or a working museum, that is it actually flies still, but they keep it on exhibit down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. This one is called the Lady Peace II. And there's a story behind that because there was one of these planes, the Lady Peace I, was flown by entertainer Harry Richmond and a pilot named Dick Merrill across the Atlantic and back. That was the first time it was ever done that somebody flew across the Atlantic and back. And what they did uh, in case they went down in the drink, they filled that big thick wing completely full of ping pong balls. Well, after uh, they got back, uh, they were real broke. They'd spent all their money then, and uh, it wasn't much of a flight because people were used to people flying, flying across the Atlantic by that time. They offered the ping pong balls for sale for a dollar apiece. And they sold a few, but after a while they had several thousand ping pong balls in storage and eventually Harry Richmond gave them to the USO during uh, World War II. I, I am very fortunate. I happen to have one. I didn't buy it, but it, it's autographed by both the pilots. American also flew the old Stinson Reliant uh, as a training plane. This was the one that Allegheny Airlines got started with by pickup mail service down in Pennsylvania. They would fly along with a hook on the back and pick up the mail bags. This one is, again is at Fredericksburg, Virginia, but it's the kind that used to fly in and out of here. More baggage labels to show some of the, the other airlines that used Albany Airport. Uh, Eastern with the great <coughs> Silver Fleet, which was run for many years by the late Eddie Rickenbacker. Allegheny, which came into Albany Airport in 1968 for the first time and is now U.S. Air, of course. Uh, Mohawk, which was celebrating its 20th anniversary in 1965. That was a little airline that got started <clears throat> because uh, the man who was commuting back and forth from Ithaca to New York took so many free riders that he decided to finally start an airline to do it. And he hired a, a, a law student from Cornell University, Robert Peach, as one of his pilots. And Peach built the airline into one of the largest commuter airlines in the United States. On the far right, TWA used to fly in here to Albany. 
TWA got started as <clears throat> a shotgun marriage of two airlines called Transcontinental Air Transport and Western Air Express, which became Transcontinental and, West, Transcontinental and Western Air. Today we know it as Transworld Airlines. The girl, incidentally, is the famous Petty Girl, which uh, used to grace the, the uh, inside pages of Esquire magazine. Mohawk Airlines flew the famous DC-3. This was the airplane that put airlines into the red, into, into the black, excuse me, got them out of the red. Uh, these are two typical DC-3s, a uh, twin-engine Douglas airplane built especially for airline service. <clears throat> the one on the top uh, is a Mohawk plane, and, and last along, they had what they call the gas, line, gas light service. They, would, uh, they had antimacassars in, in the planes and curtains and, uh, and fancy plush seats, and, and the stewardesses dressed up in 1890s costume, and uh, supposedly they were uh, only to take men only on the flights. Uh, but the ladies insisted that they had to go too, so that eventually the gaslight flights, they were going to just phase out their Douglas DC-3s with them, but they had to keep them going for a couple of years because the flights were so popular from Syracuse to New York and Albany, New York, and Buffalo to New York. Another Mohawk plane <coughs> was the uh, Convair, a 440, which was very well known in the 1950s. Another scene of the Albany Airport with a couple of Mohawk planes in the rear and uh, an American in the foreground. Then Mohawk went into jets, the BAC-111, which seemed like a huge thing to be flying in and out of airports such as Albany and Utica and Syracuse. And then the uh, uh, French, the uh, Fairchild Friendship, uh, which uh, was a turbojet and uh, was flown on all the domestic routes of Mohawk before it merged with Allegheny, or Allegheny took it over. So you have the Air Albany Airport as it looked in 1963. And you can see the, the old original hangars. There was a, uh, uh, an administration building that stood from 1928 until 1968, uh, from which Mohawk and Eastern flew all their, or directed all their flights. American used to fly from a little uh, sort of a, uh, a glass coupe on the side of the hangar. And then they built the new runways and the new uh, facilities, and the county took it over in 1963, I believe. Today, instead of airline baggage labels that you stick on your bags, you attach these so that nobody gets off with uh, one that uh, has your name on it. So they have become the modern collector's items. Those are the three airlines that we know about. So you have from primitive hangars such as this one through airline flying in uh, planes such as this one and with, crochet, and with girls with crochet hats such as that one to Jets. 747 hasn't flown into Albany Airport yet, and 
I imagine most of you folks think, will hope it doesn't. This picture just gives me a chance to say that what you have seen here tonight is simply a labor of love that we've put together to give you a little bit about Albany Airport and the people that flew into it. I haven't touched on lots of things like the history of, of the O'Connor Airlines or the FAA Weather Service or the uh, National Guard or helicopters flying out of Albany Airport or the New York State Police work or, or a, lot of, a lot of those things. And it would just be my hope that some of you would put these things down or at least see that the local historian gets a hold of them because it's, it's so easy to lose track of history that's just around the corner. Uh, we have a hard time thinking, when did this happen? And, and we invariably say it was two years ago, but maybe it was 10. So I ask that uh, in the future, if you know anything about aviation history or have any access to it, pictures, that sort of thing, that you contact our local historians and make sure that it's not thrown out or only half like this. <laughs> Who knows, you may find a Pitcairn mail wing in your attic or in your scrap basket. Thank you. Rich, we want to thank you for a, a, a fascinating and a, and a well-documented and, and a most enlightening presentation. And as you say, we, we really could go on and have almost a series of uh, sessions on, on aircraft and famous people and the Albany Airport. But thank you for giving us this evening uh, a very rich uh, summary. We would entertain questions, comments, or additions uh, to the presentation. If any of you have uh, something you'd like to inquire about or, or some bit of local information that you would care to add to the, uh, the discussion.
you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the airport kind of grew around me. Oh, that's well. Yeah. It has colonial on the yeah. top of the hangar. Yeah, they were the first ones to move. There's a gentleman there in plus fours. Do you remember plus fours? You have, you are in the plus four. No, I'm in the shorts. It was a hot day. That's Charlie Burger. Nice. His sister Eleanor and his brother Alvin. That's the kind of thing that should be part of history. And you might notice there's a few gypsy moths sitting there inside the banger. You will share that with others who, who didn't have an opportunity? We will have a, a hospitality hour uh, following the formal presentation here. And I hope that you will continue to exchange your thoughts or your comments uh, with Mr. Allen during that. Um, before we adjourn this session, Julie, would you come up and Mr. Allen, would you? You come up? As is our, cost, uh, our custom, uh, as a small uh, but we hope tangible expression of our appreciation to our speakers, that we present you with a honorary membership in the Historical Society of the Town of Colony. And we ask you to accept it and to, uh, with our best wishes and appreciation. It is an honor. Thank you. Thank you again. If there is no other business to come before the meeting, we will stand adjourned with the reminder that our next meeting is going to take place on Wednesday, May 14th. So if you want to circle that date on your calendars now, we, you will be getting more information about it, but try to reserve the date of Wednesday, May 14th for our next session here in the Stedman Room. Thank you all. Good evening. Enjoy the birthday celebration with the Girl Scouts. <laughs>